FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. It is Tuesday, June 8th. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, um, a, a number of stories have uh, been in the headlines in recent days that relate to public safety and criminal justice. And um, we have exactly the right panel, although we didn't plan it this way, to talk about these stories and more today on Political Rewind. So um, just as several examples of what I'm talking about, um, number one, the Atlanta Police Department's new chief, Rodney Bryant, who was just officially named the permanent chief earlier in the week or last week, uh, has now said as a result of uh, more shootings in the city of Atlanta over the weekend, he has decided now is the time to restructure his department. We'll talk about that. Uh, Sicoria Turner, the eight-year-old girl who was shot to death in a horrible, horrible uh, killing last July, um, yesterday sued Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and the police chief and others saying that they failed to protect uh, uh, the family and to secure public safety for all people in Atlanta. And um, we've learned that uh, Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County, plans to use a portion of his COVID relief funds, uh, federal funds, to uh, uh, for money for reforms within his own criminal justice system in DeKalb. So we're going to talk about all that and more. And as I said, we've got the perfect panel for it, starting with AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman with us on Tuesdays. Hi, Tamar. Thanks for being here. Hey, Bill. Happy to be here. Good. Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to your um, comments during the show today, as I am Sam Olins. Sam Olins frequent panelist on this show, of course, is the former attorney general of the state of Georgia, and in that capacity uh, oversaw a lot of what happens in the criminal justice and law enforcement community. So, Sam, this is a perfect day to have you here. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure, sir. Also, Michael Thurman, uh, who we just mentioned, has uh, now unveiled a plan to look at reforms in the criminal justice program, uh, a system in, in uh, DeKalb County. And Michael, I want to start with you, if I may, and then bring Tamar and um, Sam in. Here's what you said when you, you talked about the COVID relief funding that you are getting. I think you're getting what? How much money is the federal government giving you in COVID relief funds total this time? Well, total projected is 145 million but we received the first tranche which is about 73 million dollars and here's what you said you said that public safety is a part of the pandemic it's one of the pathologies associated with covid-19 once you put it in context then you must consider funding and how we could leverage <coughs> this and advance our agenda so um, talk about what that means, Michael. How are you going to use that money, and what work needs to be done on the criminal justice system in DeKalb that might also give us some thoughts about other communities and how they might want to rethink criminal justice? From my perspective, COVID-19 is really a three-pronged crisis. Uh, obviously, it's medical. 
in terms of infections and the unfortunate number of deaths that occurred in this nation and all over this world. But it also has an economic component, uh, people having lost jobs. And even though the economy is reopening, we find that women with children and people of color are still struggling with getting back into the workforce and other frontline workers. But also this growing plague of violence is sweeping across our nation, of course, here in Metro Atlanta, are all, I believe, are pathologies that are growing out of uh, this crisis. Now, uh, violence and, 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 and gun violence predated uh, the pandemic, but obviously it's been exacerbated as a result of it for many reasons. And so what we've done is something actually we began doing four years ago, Bill. Uh, we recognize that the police department is obviously the most critical agency in protecting and serving and keeping uh, the cap citizens in any community safe. But to only focus on the police department, I think, is a misguided understanding of public safety. There's really a system. And so four years ago, we began to uh, increase salaries and invest in this system. So I submit to you when you, you know, obviously the police department is key, but the probation office may even be more important because studies show that the disproportionate number of crimes are actually committed by individuals who are already on either probation or parole. So we've invested in probation. If you want to prevent or interrupt the pipeline, the school-to-prison pipeline, then you invest in your uh, juvenile court because they are still young people who may have made mistakes, who could still be rehabilitated and redirected. So that's the key, investing in a $3,000 bonus for public safety employees throughout the public safety system and also helping our courts because obviously the courts play a big role, the DA's office, the uh, solicitor's office, magistrate's court. And one of the things I'm most proud of in the camp is that these players, the sheriff's office, sheriff matters, we've kept the lines of communication open and you have to align your resources and your strategy and communication in order, I think, to ultimately be safe. Um, you're devoting, I think the figure is uh, something like $11 million towards these public safety initiatives that you just uh, rolled out, laid out for us. Uh, Tamar, uh, a lot of people talk about a holistic approach to criminal justice reform, not just a matter of what you do with police departments, and that's precisely what uh, Michael Thurman is talking about. Yeah, and one of the things I'm really curious to ask CEO Thurman about is um, – those bonuses that you are giving to police officers and, and other folks in the system to kind of keep them happy. Um, you see an issue with morale, especially when we talk about the police department in the city of Atlanta, especially after um, all the events of last summer. And I know that's something that Mayor Bottoms has struggled with. So talk to me, you know, what's the approach, um, you know, with what you're doing in DeKalb and why is that so important to kind of keep your folks that you've already hired happy? Well, thank you for the question, Tamar. Absolutely. And it's the bonuses, it's the pay raise, but I guess one of the I guess one of the proudest moments that I've had as CEO uh was a longtime officer who just told me he'd been in uh with the cab over twenty three years and he said, The one thing I wanna to say to you, CEO, is that we I feel like someone cares and anyone who's ever served in a supervisor or leadership position in the public or the private sector, the most important thing we can do 
is to help the people work with us to recognize that we are concerned and we care. And even though the answer is not always yes, but the answer always should be yes when it comes to understanding we're here together. One thing about the bonuses is across the board. So, so it doesn't matter whether you're a sergeant or a lieutenant or you're a rookie on the street, you get the same bonus. And so to me, that sends a message that we're all in it together, no big eyes or little use. And look, I don't want to suggest that we figured this out. We haven't. Uh, still too many uh, people are dying in the cab and all across this uh, region. But the key is in the public side, what you really want to do uh, is get control of the trend line. I don't even suggest, and I don't want anyone to think that somehow we've come up with this magic solution to gun violence. We haven't. Our goal is to try to capture the trend line so that the positive trend lines are improving and the negatives are declining. Sam uh, Olins, one of the things that struck me in uh, the article that the AJC wrote about these proposed changes is a quote from the county's, uh, DeKalb County's chief operating officer um, who said during a meeting recently, quote, one does not simply arrest their way to a safe community. It's not that simple. Uh, it's a simp- it's a very basic statement, but there's a certain uh, uh, it's 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 a kind of a profound insight as well, Sam. No, a- absolutely. And the other issue is uh, arresting someone and immediately letting them back on the street so that they get to commit more crimes before you ever have the first trial. Uh, I, I think a lot of what uh, Mike said is, you know, he's 100 percent correct. Uh, I do think at the end of the day, though, we frankly got to go back in time and we got to help these children so that they're on third grade reading level, they're on sixth grade math level. Um, While the CEO is is absolutely correct that we need to end the cycle from the first arrest, we also need to stop the first arrest. And, um, you know, candidly, I've seen way too many mistakes during covid uh, in regard to helping the children that need the help most. Mike, respond to that. Well, Bill, you quoted uh, Mr. Zach Williams, and thank you. He's the CEO. That was a brilliant uh, assessment and statement. And, and I agree with Sam. You know, having worked in the public schools as a superintendent, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's not really about public or private education. We know 90% of the students in DeKalb County and I, uh, are in public schools. I, I support those in private schools as well. So investing and continuing to support our public schools uh, is the best uh, elixir of, or answer to uh, rising crime rates. But look, uh, I support our police department, uh, uh, Director Lumpkin, uh, Chief Ramos, I think are doing a great job as well as the men and women in uniform. Uh, we are gradu- graduating 25 new officers on Thursday. And it, you just can't say enough about the men and women who put their lives on the line every day to keep us safe. And we have to continue uh, as a county, as a state, as a nation, supporting the people who are keeping us safe by recognizing that reforms are needed. One of the things that hasn't gotten a lot of play, Bill, but I'm most proud of is that we'll be hiring three new nurses uh, to go out on calls of dealing with mental health. Uh, there was one jurisdiction I was watching a news report where they said 20% of police calls are really mental health related. And so we have to provide more resources to help people who are episodic because all too often 
uh, those calls, especially if it involves guns, uh, end up in a tragic outcome of some other deadly weapon. Yeah, I'm really interested in that aspect of, of your budget, CEO Thurman, um, these mobile crisis nurses. And it's something that you heard a lot of during the debate last summer over defund the police, that the police aren't trained and equipped to handle a lot of the mental health issues that they're called in to deal with kind of day in and day out. So what's the theory behind these nurses and um, what else are you looking to to do with them? What's the what's the hope? Um, you know, is there hope you can send them out with almost any call that you may get? Well, actually, what really motivated me, we have really two nurses, but it's just one on duty at any one time, and so it's obviously not enough. But it grew Tamar out of a conversation I had with with a Miss Billis, who unfortunately her son was suffering from PS. Uh, uh, PTSD. Uh, he, we had a confrontation the police department about four years ago, and, and he fired shots at the police, returned fire, and he was killed. And I sat down with the, his mother, and I'll never forget that moment. And through her pain and suffering, she asked me to promise to bring more resources to the table to help men and women in the community who might be suffering from mental illness and end up in a, a violent confrontation with police officers. Look, police officers are not mental health counselors. They're just not trained to do that work. And so we have to create more resources so that we can respond. And that's one of the cutting edge things I'm seeing as I study literature and what jurisdictions are doing, creating more resources on the mental health side. Unfortunately, you don't remember this tomorrow, you were still in middle school, you know, we used to, quote, institutionalize and provide in-house services for people with mental illness. But I think it was Ronald Reagan uh, under his administration. You know, we didn't have this many homeless people. This is not normal. And so many people who need mental health services are literally on the streets and in the community now, which is a good thing. But at the same time, the challenges come to rest at the, at the police department. The number one provider of mental health services in DeKalb County is the sheriff, Melody Maddox, at the DeKalb County Jail. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I was chair of Cobb, we uh, gave our uh, recruits twice the state hours for minimal training. So when the CEO talks about training, training overall in the state is insufficient. Uh, we all need to be providing more training to our public safety officers. And of course, that training needs to include not only knowledge of the crimes and not only knowledge of the weapons they carry, but much, much more training, as the CEO just stated, for mental health um, to de-escalate. Uh, I think we also need to have a discussion, and, and you know, this would require a change in the law, but not every call, frankly, requires a police officer. Uh, I, I do think as we've had this discussion about changing uh, public safety, that uh, there are calls now that police officers are asked to take that are frankly not worthy of their training, where we should be able to have other individuals uh, in the community hired by the jurisdiction to handle those calls. Uh, if you have a, a motor vehicle accident with no injuries and a scratch on a car, you ought to be able to train someone who isn't a sworn police officer to go to that scene 
just as you have someone in Marietta now that opens your car door if you've locked yourself outside your car. I, I, you know, it's a tough discussion. It's going to take time. But I'd rather, frankly, spend more of those resources on blood and guts crime and mental health illness and devote other resources that are cheaper to those more minor incidents. Sam, uh, you said something at the start of, of that that I'm interested in pursuing. You say this may require a change in state law. What, what, is, what, is the, uh, what, is, uh, what do the statutes of Georgia say about the responsibility of police officers for things like uh, coming to the scene of an automobile wreck and dealing with that? It has to be a law enforcement officer? Yeah, it needs to be a sworn officer. But, but candidly, just as we're dealing with uh, changes in, in many other criminal justice laws, it's time that we consider whether changes are appropriate there, too. Uh, one so of the things me, that – I'm ahead, sorry, Mike. could I just – because uh, Chief Ramos has actually hired, uh, I think, two community service officers, and she wanted to do just that, Sam – uh, but state law prohibits uh, you have to have a sworn officer respond to a fender bender and not someone who's not sworn. So it is a state law that creates some challenges associated with that. Um, Tamara, I, I want to turn uh, to continue the conversation. Just talk for a minute about the Sicoria New, uh, uh, Turner News Conference, the family news conference yesterday. We recall that last July, I think it was the fourth holiday that Coria Turner was really the victim of a shooting that just it had no meaning whatsoever. I mean, there, there's never meant meaning to shootings, but she was an innocent victim of a random shooting uh, down at the site where Rayshard, where there were demonstrations over Rayshard Brooks killing. Um, it had turned into kind of a lawless zone for a period of time. Uh, the city was faulted for not wanting to move in more quickly and stop those people who were down there um, demonstrating um, in uh, uh, ways that were uh, uh, of concern to the community. So the family called the news conference yesterday. And I just want to play a quick soundbite from one of the attorneys for the family um, talking about why they believe uh, they need this lawsuit against the mayor, the police chief, and others. This is a lawsuit that is based on a failure of city government at the highest levels. The mayor did an interview with the editorial board, and she essentially conceded that while they had planned and decided to go to the area uh, and to clear away the barriers and to clear away at least those who were not peacefully protesting, they held off on doing that because of a request from council member Joyce Shepard. So, Tamar, there's a, 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 there's a strange tension here, I think, between those in the African-American community, uh, certainly, um, who feel that police in their communities are more of a danger to them, and therefore uh, uh, the police departments need reforming, um, if not uh, uh, having fewer law enforcement officers themselves, more mental health people on the street, whatever. So there's that tension. And on the other hand, there are Sicoria Turner and her family saying, we didn't get law enforcement to protect us the way we needed to be protected. And that's a tension that has to be uh, looked at and resolved in some way. Sure. And 
looking back at what happened last summer, that was, you know, a moment after, um, you know, the George Floyd case, uh, when when tensions were at an all-time high, when the country was talking about, um, you know, the legacy of racist institutions, of the role of, of cops in protecting our public safety, and people didn't know how to kind of strike that balance, but everyone knows that what happened to... Um, to Sequoia Turner was was a tragedy. She was sitting in the back seat of her parents' car, and they were trying to get around, you know, this this checkpoint that these protesters at Wendy's had set up. These armed protesters, and you know, when the family tried to pull around the the barrier to get home, uh, these people shot into the car, and and the little girl was struck in the back. I mean, an, a, a tragedy. And so, part of you can't blame the the parents for for wanting to do everything um, in the name of their of their daughter. Um, but I don't think there really are any, you know, easy answers here. Uh, and, and I don't think we're any closer to kind of figuring out what the role of the police should be at this moment. Sam? So a, a couple comments. Um, number one, I have no idea why Wendy's is a party defendant. I mean, c clearly they weren't providing a lead. That was public safety. That was city of Atlanta. That was just added insult, I think, for Wendy's to, to be a party defendant here. Um, more importantly, and, and I'd really be interested in Michael's response to this, um, there's a friction here between what in all likelihood public safety felt was appropriate and what political leadership felt was appropriate. And as a general statement, I always, at the end of the day, felt I was supposed to listen to the experts in the room, and the experts in the room were public safety. Uh, and I never quite understood why public safety wasn't able to do their job. Michael? <laughs> well, first of all, you know, my heart breaks for the Turner family. You know, having a daughter who's now a young lady, I, I can't even imagine the grief of losing a beautiful young lady uh, like Sequoia Turner uh, appeared to be. But, you know, what we really have to really think and about this entire situation, not just Atlanta, because it's happening all over Metro, all over Georgia, all over America. And to recognize and address root causes to end this violence and to take really aggressive steps to do it. You know, right now, Georgia has $5 billion in federal money uh, to cab, Gwinnett, Atlanta, all the major cities, jurisdictions. So what if resources was not the issue? Uh, what if it's a lack of will or lack of ideas? And that's one of the things that's the reckoning we're facing right now uh, as a nation. So, you know, we have these resources, So, but for so long, the, the default position was, well, we just don't have the money to do it. Well, that's really not the challenge right now. The challenge right now is what do we do uh, as a nation and as a state? And something Bill said, there is a tension, and I think it's a false choice to uh, pursue, well, should we reform the police or should we more aggressively pursue those perpetrators? It's a false choice. You can actually do both. Uh, you don't have to make that choice. And I think public policymakers uh, working with law enforcement. And the last thing, and I'll stop at this, you really can't politicize public safety when you do. Uh, you just 
going into a very, very bad place. And any time we've done that, uh, we just ended up in a worse situation. So part of it is you really, and no offense to my friends in the media, you can't uh, address a problem as complex and seemingly intractable as gun violence by focusing on the 24-hour news cycle. Uh, It takes years of consistent, persistent, aggressive policy to redirect and change or get control, as I talked to earlier, of a trend line. I can't do that in a news cycle. I can't do that maybe even in one term in office. But you can begin the process and hopefully begin to make progress so that all of us can be safe. And one of the things we found is that no one's safe now. That's what's been so disconcerting about the crime spike, that it's not just on the south side of the cab or south Atlanta. Now it's impacting all of us. And that's, I think, is what's creating so much anxiety and fear. I think the problem is that, you know, you talk about changing trend lines and how sometimes that can't be done even in even in a turn, term in office. The problem is that for so many of our politicians, you know, who are always running for re-election, especially when we're talking about the legislature or the House where you have two-year terms, you know, there's always an election around the corner. And um, it's so easy to go after the people in power for being inadequate. Um, and so we we saw that with Mayor Bottoms as she was deciding whether to to run for re-election, and people like Kasim Reed who were going after her for not um, getting more of a grip on on kind of what's happening. You see that um, in Congress and in the race for for president. Um, you know, you have Democrats who are using this as a call for more um, gun control. You have Republicans who are saying this is the time to instill more more law and order. It's such an easy thing to grasp on. It's such an easy way to kind of go after whoever's in power. I don't think anybody wants, anybody has the patience really, um, especially in the political arena to, to say like, oh, give them time, give them time. It's such an easy thing to hit your opponent on. So, well, you know, tomorrow, uh, I think, I think, go ahead, Michael. No, you go, Bia, you go. She, tomorrow made a great point. Well, I want to go ahead. Yeah. Well, I want to pick up on, on both those points, actually. Michael, I want to, you're right. The media uh, always, always, especially TV news, plays up violent crime. I mean, I will tell you during my 20 years at WSB-TV in Atlanta, the number of days that, uh, especially at 11 o'clock at night, it was a murder, a shooting somewhere in the city uh, that led the news. And, 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 and I always found that to be unfortunate. Uh, at the same time, Sam... Uh, when Michael talks about the fact that, you know, these, these issues can't be resolved overnight, they take time, all that makes sense. But Sam, when you come, when this weekend you read the news that three people who were walking in their neighborhoods or running in their neighborhoods uh, in Atlanta were shot by, by someone driving by and randomly shooting at them and then runs into uh, a pedestrian in the neighborhood it's it's hard not to say we need some immediate action here. Yeah, that uh, that comes really close to anarchy. Um, you know, I thought the police chief's comments yesterday, the Atlanta police chief's comments yesterday were were fine about some structural changes he wants to make to the department. But candidly, uh, when you're hundreds of officers short. The biggest problem is your hundreds of officers short. It makes no difference how much you restructure. You don't have feet on the ground. And, uh, you know, I, I'm willing to bet that CEO Thurmond 
uh, ended up with new officers transferring from Atlanta to DeKalb County, uh, as did numerous other jurisdictions. And I think one of the biggest problems is it takes weeks, if not months, to simply get a new recruit class eligible before you even get to train them. And, you know, when you're looking at 300, 400 cops short, that could take years. And we don't have years to get this under control. Michael, let me give you the last word in this segment before we get to a break. Well, what I was saying, though, I wasn't so much criticizing the news cycle. The news is the news, and you have to report it. What I was saying, though, as an elected official, you can't be captured by it. You have to try as best you can to do the right thing to solve the problem and recognize that sometimes you can't get it solved by 6 o'clock. It's going to take longer, and you're going to be criticized, and you're going to be uh, 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 questioned, but you have to commit. And, you know, at some point, I guess I'm an old guy, Bill. We've been around a while. If you go back, I met you. (laughs) You know, I'm at the point where you have to get to not the next election, but the next generation. And that's just because I'm old and I've been around. And at this point, I'm at a point where either I'm going to make a difference or not, and maybe I get elected again, maybe not. It doesn't matter. Hopefully I can make a difference. And that's where I think leadership comes to play and ultimately when and how we're going to get out of this conundrum. All right, Michael Thurman, that's a perfect place to uh, pause for a moment and take a break. And, yes, you're right. You, Sam Olins, and I have all known each other for, oh, maybe 35 years or so. So we are definitely the old people in the conversation today. Tamar, uh, the young person who is going to eventually uh, be the one who takes all of our places. (laughs) This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Sam Olins, Michael Thurman, Tamar Hallerman with us today on Political Rewind. We've been talking, of course, about criminal justice reform, about crime uh, in the metro area. Uh, Real quickly, Michael, I apologize for having to plead ignorance here. Uh, The city of Atlanta has seen, obviously, a a sharp, sharp spike in crime, uh, especially gun violence. I don't know precisely what's been happening in DeKalb County. And as we move the conversation in a slightly different direction in terms of how politics is going to play a role in uh, the candidates coming forward in the city of Atlanta's mayoral election to talk about violent crime, what, what exactly is happening in DeKalb with violent crime? Well, in between 2019 and 2020, uh, which is the time that this play began, DeKalb experienced a 3.5% increase in the number of homicides, which in some quarters is positive because I think Atlanta had a 58% spike, Gwinnett had a 6% spike, we had a 3.5% spike. But let me tell you, that is absolutely nothing. I told the chief, and, and, and all of my executive staff and the public safety director, I'd be damned that we're going to go out and celebrate the fact that only 125 people were killed, uh, murdered in DeKalb County last year. That's absolutely nothing to celebrate. Uh, although we were fortunate not to have a spike, uh, what we want to do is drive this number down. Look, I've asked public safety, and it's been that way since for three years now, each time there's a homicide in DeKalb County, I get an email 
with the details. And they come seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And often it's a young black man uh, who, between the ages of 18 and, and 30 who's been gunned down, uh, life destroyed, family hurt, children without a father, sisters without a brother, mothers and fathers without a son. And we just have to really, really focus and do what we can. It wasn't as bad as some of our neighboring jurisdictions, but you, I guess we, I can't celebrate the fact that it wasn't a spike when so many lives were still lost as a result okay, of and gun violence. I apologize for interrupting you there. Okay, so tomorrow I, I wanted to set that up. I mean, DeKalb has not seen the kind of increase. The city of Atlanta is close to 60% increase in violent crimes, um, and that clearly has become a major issue, the issue in the mayor's race that is shaping up. Um, it, it, the, the mayor, the current mayor, who's not running for re-election, Keisha Lance Bottoms, has called this a COVID crime wave all along. Um, but there's a sense in which many people feel that she has not been able to put her arms around it, that calling it that somehow is an excuse for not being able to do more. Um, and yet that's going to be the issue in the upcoming election. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the fact as people try and hash out any sort of kind of solutions for this, I think people realize how many interlocking factors there are and how a lot of these are things that absolutely predated COVID and that there might not be an easy fix, especially as all these folks jostle to, to replace Mayor Bonhams in Atlanta. You know, we're talking about issues like education, you know, for young people, we're talking about things like economic development. We're talking about officers and being able to keep them on the job, the, the kinds of tactics they are and are not allowed to use, the access of guns um, and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, it's <laughs> I, I'm going to be curious to see how the, the lines are drawn um, as these mayoral candidates debate. And, and I don't think there is going to be some easy answer where one person is going to be absolutely right. Um, and the other people are going to be wrong. I don't know if anyone has a great handle on on what can be done to to solve all of this. Sam, is is there a COVID crime wave? I mean, I, I do you believe that in fact, because there's a spike in violent crimes in major cities across the country. Atlanta's not alone. Uh, and do you think that a lot of it has to be attributed to COVID nineteen in some way? No, no. Um, I, I think that uh, there are numerous societal um, elements here at play that all need to be subject to uh, meaningful dissertations. Uh, but I think it is a, uh, a, a frankly, uh, an attempt at an easy pass. And there is no easy pass here. Uh, the, the problems didn't occur overnight. The problems are generational. And it will be generational to solve our societal problems. Uh, I think uh, many of the things that uh, the CEO is attempting to do uh, are very good steps in the right direction, but you know it, it doesn't change overnight. Uh, but I, but I do think that it, it comes across as an excuse, and no one is interested in an excuse at this time. Um, Tamara, I. I, I suspect that both Sam Oldens and Michael Thurman are, are going to be cautious about being critical of Mayor Bottoms right now. She isn't running for re-election. But since announcing she isn't running for re-election, 
Um, I, she's become kind of invisible here. I mean, at a time when crime continues, after this last weekend, we had this horrible uh, wave of crimes, as we talked about before the break. And yet it, it feels in a way like this city is a little rudderless, uh, that she isn't there taking decisive action. Am I being unfair to her, unkind? Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, you could see her being a little defensive in some of her comments, I think, because she got so much criticism about her handling of crime. And, you know, she used to say, don't question whether I care or not. Of, of course I care. And I believe a couple weeks ago, she announced she was going to convene a, a task force, or I guess a group to kind of look at some of the, the root causes of all of this. But I think a lot of folks are expecting kind of easy solutions. And as we've been talking about, there there aren't any, and they certainly won't be solved by the time, um, you know, the mayor is is out of office. And so, um, yeah, I think that's kind of where we are. Michael, do you see any evidence that the city of Atlanta is, as Tamar points out, the mayor a while back appointed a task force. She took a year to decide that Rodney Bryant, during all of this uh, increase in crime, should be the permanent new uh, chief of police. So he was in a somewhat uh, precarious position. D do you worry that the city of Atlanta, your next-door neighbor, has not begun really thinking about the kind of comprehensive approach you believe is necessary? And is there a candidate, are, are the candidates for mayor, I know you're not going to endorse somebody right now, are the candidates for mayor starting to address those concerns? Well, as you know, Bill, portions of the city of Atlanta are actually in DeKalb County. And yeah. because Atlanta uh, is our capital city, we all have an interest in it. But one of the things I want to say that I think is, may or may not be greatly appreciated is that we're dealing with a novel virus that has created a novel crisis. Novel is first. There is no playbook. No one knows almost much of anything yet about this virus because even there the, the whole origin of it is changing so every time we think we know something the next news cycle changes what we thought we knew and so public leaders like myself and i you know the one thing <laughs> that i know is that experience it, it's a tool but you can't use it as a crutch when you're dealing with a novel crisis and so what is being challenged is the ability of leadership in this nation at all levels to respond to something that no one has been prepared for, to be quite honest with. So I don't criticize uh, Mayor Bottom, quite frankly, because if you look across this country, I read an article, so many leaders at the federal, state, and local level are saying enough. This has been, and I've been in a few fights and crises in my day. I've never confronted anything like this at any point in time, because there's just very little knowledge or understanding. The truth is, I don't know whether COVID is creating this crisis, but up until, but I don't know that that's true either. So consequently, if you sit in there having to make decisions, you can't exclude an option without evidence. And so that's what we're facing right now. And that's what every leader at every level is facing in public and private sector. You just don't know. All right. So, Tamar, let's talk a little bit about the mayor's race and the way it is shaping up right now and the fact that crime in Atlanta is, be, is the issue. Uh, Felicia Moore, city council president, has declared her candidacy. She declared even before Mayor Bottom said she wasn't going to run again. Uh, the other day, her response to the weekend of uh, shootings 
in Buckhead was the public is scared. People are feeling unsafe. People feel they can't walk. They can't jog. They can't get gas at the gas station. And she goes on from there. Sharon Gay, who is a partner in the law firm that Sam Olins uh, works at, uh, Denton's, uh, is also in the race. She announced she's appointed a former uh, DeKalb County uh, uh, law enforcement ch- uh, chief uh, to be her advisor on crime. And now, tomorrow, we get to the punchline of all this. Kasim Reed appears to be making moves that seem to suggest he's going to get into this race and make cr- crime his number one issue. Tomorrow? Or he's really great at toying with us and, and getting a headline. His uh, his birthday is coming up on Thursday night. And, um, you know, my, my colleagues managed to get a, a copy of the invite. Uh, you know, you could donate $25,000 um, to be able to co-host the event. But what struck everyone on there is that the maximum contribution for a donation is $4,300, which is exactly the limit <laughs> for city campaign contributions under state law. Um, and we've heard a lot of kind of bravado from him over the last couple of weeks about what he would have done differently as he criticized Mayor Bottoms about her approach to crime uh, without a ton of specifics. You know, he talks about how when he was mayor, you know, he he would get a, a, a ping on his cell phone telling him there was a, a crime and, you know, I wouldn't have let things got, you know, have gotten so out of control, but not a whole lot of detail about what would be different. So it's going to be very interesting to see how he approaches this issue moving forward. But certainly he knows how to wait. He knows how to get attention from the media. And this birthday party on Thursday um, <laughs> will certainly do the trick. You know, Sam, uh, a lot of us have uh, referred to this birthday party, this fundraising birthday party, as uh, some evidence or suggestion that he's about to announce his candidacy. But I thought there was another interesting tell, uh, and that is that a a couple of weeks back, Kasim Reed apologized for the federal investigation, for the corruption that the city of Atlanta is under investigation for. There have been several indictments already of people in his administration, and he apologized publicly for the first time, saying, I'm so sorry that all this unfolded. Oh, by the way, I've never yet been uh, uh, one of the targets of this investigation. I thought, Sam, that was a pretty revealing tell as well. Yeah, you know, if I recall correctly, you can't accept funds prior to uh, submitting documentation to what I would call the ethics committee, the state ethics committee. I'm not sure if tomorrow look to see whether anything has been filed, but I would tend to think it's frankly an ethics violation to request checks, accept checks, and not do that filing. Uh, so I'm sort of wait, waiting for when the media is going to check into that because um, I don't think it's the depositing of the checks. I think it's the requesting of the checks that creates an ethics issue. One other thing, Bill, if I might say, that relates to, to, to what Mike said, um, you know, while I may disagree with the mayor on whether this is a COVID crime wave, I don't disagree that the mayor's gone through hell. I mean, I can't imagine an elected official in four years having had everything that she got hit with from the breach to the uh, city hall corruption issues to to COVID. And it it doesn't really surprise me that she doesn't want to run for reelection because she's had a lifetime of aggravation in this four years. And and candidly, um, no one would want to have gone through what she's gone through. 
Um, I get that. It has been a very difficult year for Keisha Lance Bottoms. Uh, Michael, did you want to weigh in very quickly? Uh, Sam Burmistoz has told me we got to get to a break, but if you have a comment, please go ahead. No, no, I'll wait till we get back. <laughs> okay, good. Leave us in suspense. This is Political Rewind. We'll be back in a moment. We're back with a short segment before we have to say goodbye today. Michael Thurman wanted to weigh in on the legacy, perhaps, of Keisha Lance Bottoms. Of course, we won't know until decades, if not years from now, the whole quality of her leadership. But I think under the circumstances, uh, she managed herself uh, extremely well. And I just know how tough it is. And people who come to me now knowing the absolute answer to every question, I listen, but I listen with a great deal of uh, just almost, you must be, it's humility. COVID has forced humility among the public elected officials. And so when, at the end of the day, I think she did, I know she did the right thing for herself and her family, and I just wish her well. And I think she will continue to make major contributions uh, in the public and the private sector going forward. All right. Thank you for that, Michael. Um, we, we, as I said, we're, we've got a short segment here, but but tomorrow I do want to try to address one thing, and especially with Michael Thurman with us today. Um, Politico reported yesterday that, you know, we already know that the vaccination effort across the country is stalled out oh, quite oh. a bit, and it's increasingly unlikely that we're going to get to the 70% vaccinated uh, 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 goal that President Biden has set for the 4th of July. But here's one of the things that stood out. At this point, less than a quarter of black Americans have had even their first COVID-19 shot as of just yesterday. Um, the overall rate in Georgia is only 30 plus percent of people vaccinated. So we're really at a point where uh, even though most of the restrictions are lifted, we're having problems getting people now to vac- get vaccinated. Yeah, and you listen to people like Dr. Fauci talk, and they they note how we've gotten past the low-hanging fruit, the people who really wanted to get vaccinated. Now the problem is the people who are left are either downright skeptical, uh, you know, think the vaccine was developed way too fast, they don't trust it, maybe they don't trust the government at all, maybe they don't believe in vaccines at all, Um, or in the case of many black Americans, there's just a a distrust when it comes to the medical establishment. And it's going to take a lot more work on behalf of the public health professionals in order to convince people to get vaccinated. And, you know, some of it may be very community by community or demographic by demographic. You know, you can try and task influencers or or celebrities or just respected people in communities to try and help. But it's going to be a lot more of kind of a detailed kind of in the weeds thing. You're not going to be able to do it kind of with these, you know, a big national thing like what Fauci's and, you know, his um, colleagues have been able to do in the past. Michael, you've been concerned about getting everybody into Cab County shots in arms, but you have, for the entire time the vaccines have been available, been particularly concerned about making sure the African-Americans in your county get vaccinated. What what are you doing to try to increase that percentage? This past weekend, we were out at four locations at our monthly food distribution. We had EMTs working with the DeKalb Board of Health and DeKalb NAACP uh, in the community, and the hesitancy is real. Tomorrow is right. I mean, it is real. I, I talk to people on an ongoing basis. 
But one of the things is sometimes it's not the message, but the messengers. Uh, one of the mistakes I think we made, I know we made here in Georgia, if you think back through all the press conferences that were held by our state leaders, there was never a person of color making any statement about any aspect of the vaccine, or taking the vaccine or safety associated with the vaccine. That was just a huge strategic error. And one of the things you learn in communication, you know it in the news uh, uh, arena, you have to have a diversity of people who are there helping to deliver the message, which helps to create credibility. And I just think we missed that, and hopefully it's something we can correct going forward. Sam, uh, uh, it, there are these efforts to get out into the African-American community, take the vaccine to the community. That's not going to help with all the Republicans who are the other major group of uh, uh, demographic that is not getting vaccinated. There, there's a problem with that effort as well, Sam. You know, I'd rather talk about Michael's uh, <laughs> section of the populace <laughs> when it really comes down to, down to it. I think Michael's frankly done an amazing job in the cabin. It needs to be uh, followed in, in other jurisdictions. We need to be working with the NAACP, the Latin American Association. Uh, we need to be working with all communities of color. We need to be going to churches. We need to be going to food drops. We need to be going everywhere to get, you know, senior and Cobb, they're, they're having these vaccinations in senior centers. Uh, and I think, you know, anything and everything is what's needed. The only thing that seems to work, Bill, that I've seen with regard to uh, Trumpers is candidly providing an incentive, such as some of the governors have done. That's the only thing I've seen, and and I don't think that's uh, promising. It's just something. All right. Um, well, thank you for uh, your comments on that, Sam. By the way, uh, tomorrow, I do think, before we were really out of time, but Sam Olin's raised an interesting question that I think a lot of us will probably want to look into, and that is whether Kasim Reed uh, can raise these mo this money for his fundraiser on Thursday uh, legally without having some sort of uh, uh, filing uh, about a potential candidacy tomorrow. I'm fascinated by that, and I certainly uh, hope that GPB News will look into it. Yeah, something definitely I'll, I'll raise to my colleagues. One thing that's worth noting is on the invitation for his birthday party, it does not note where the celebration money is going. And perhaps it's that yes. ambiguity that's allowing him to get uh, around that. Fascinating. All right, we are completely out of time. Tamar Hallerman, Sam Olins, Michael Thurman, thank you all so much for our conversation today. Um, we're back again, of course, with another show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Uh, wear your mask uh, in the appropriate places. And yes, get vaccinated if you haven't been. Uh, we'll see you all tomorrow. Bye-bye.